back and share with you this morning. Uh, as Lawrence shared, my name is Matthew Campbell. Uh, I work for Baptist Youth uh, in the youth department. I, w- I work with Dr. Luke here to, to my right, so you can pray for me every day as I work with him. Uh, but it is great to be with you today. Thank you so much for your invitation. And do keep that passage open in front of you in 1 John. It'll be helpful as we work through it. About five years ago, I uh, led a team of young people to South Africa. Uh, but five years ago, it was a great team, a really good experience as we were visiting this missionary. Some of you might be aware of this guy. His name's Pierre. And uh, Pierre is a missionary. He, he works out in South Africa in a place called George. But Pierre's also a beggar. And uh, he would get up really, really early, like 4 a.m., and he would beg bread right through the morning, and then he would sell it kind of at 9 a.m. to different shops and bakeries, and that would kind of fund his ministry. And on one occasion, as we were um, out with uh, Pierre during that two weeks, we actually as a team got an opportunity to get up early one morning and bake bread with him at 4 a.m. I know 4 a.m. is a bit of an early start to bake bread, but this was the first experience I'd ever had or any other team had ever had of making bread from scratch, and so we learned quite a lot of uh, new things that morning. And one of the things that we learned as we were making bread from scratch, or one of the things that I learned, the big takeaway for me, was that there's a very important process that must occur for the bread to be properly made. And it's a process called kneading. Has anyone ever heard of kneading before? More people than I thought, okay. That's going to expose myself here. Uh, kneading. Kneading is the process that you get the dough kind of at the start of the process and you work it through your hands for like five, ten minutes. And I'm told that this kneading process is extremely important because as you knead the bread through your hands, it causes this internal chemical transformation to occur within the bread. The gluten strands become stretched. Listen to me as if I know what I'm talking about. The gluten strands become stretched. And that internal chemical transformation that occurs as you knead the bread through your hands is of vital importance because as you pull your bread out of the oven right at the very end, just by looking at the bread as it comes out of the oven, you'll be able to tell whether or not that kneading process has taken place you'll have a nice arched loaf of bread. If the kneading process hasn't taken place and the internal chemical transformation has not occurred, your bread will look floppy. And you know, as we read the Bible, we discover that for you as a Christian, quite similarly, an internal transformation has occurred. It's not a chemical transformation. It's far greater than that. If you're here and you're a Christian this morning, an internal spiritual transformation has occurred. And as you read through the book of 1 John, what you've discovered is as you look at the life of a Christian, there should be certain evidences, certain telltale signs that that internal spiritual transformation has occurred. Just by looking at the life of an individual, just as you pull that bread out of the oven, and you can tell just by looking at the bread whether or not that internal chemical transformation has occurred. Similarly, just by looking at the life of a Christian, there are certain telltale signs which validate and authenticate that they too have received an internal transformation. But perhaps the question you're asking as we read the book of 1 John, and as John writes this little letter to a church, perhaps the question you're asking is this, why are these people in this church to whom John is writing, why are they so bothered about knowing whether or not someone really is a Christian? Well, if you've been following along this series, no doubt you've picked up some of the very important context which reveals to us that this church have actually been through quite an unsettling experience, haven't they? This church have been through quite an unsettling experience. In fact, what we can gather as we read the book of 1 John, it's kind of difficult because you're kind of reading one side of the story. It's kind of like listening to one end of the telephone line. But what we gather is that in this church, a number of members have just got up and left. 
And the reason these members have got up and left isn't to plant another church. It's not something hopeful like that. The reason they've got up and left is because they claim to have found a more superior way, a new type of spirituality, one which they claim is the authentic spirituality. Real spirituality, they say, is not found in the traditional confines of church. It's not found in this traditional Christian message that you all believe. That's stiff and starchy. No, we find the authentic way to be known as God's children. We find a superior way. And I'm sure you can imagine being one of the members of this church, seeing much of your congregation getting up and leave, claiming to have found a superior faith. You can imagine how that might be a little bit unsettling, couldn't you? You would start asking yourself all these questions. Are they right? Have we been deceived this whole time? Maybe we're not authentically God's people. Maybe we've been tricked. Maybe we've been deceived. Maybe they're true after all. And so why does John write this letter? He writes to the believers who remained in the church. Why? To give them confidence. Know that you are the real deal. You do follow an authentic Christian message. You are authentic believers. If you cast your eye down to verse 13 of chapter 5, you'll kind of see his purpose statement for the letter, don't you? He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John writes to give confidence to the believers who remain in this church. No, you are authentic believers and you follow an authentic Christian message. And so it's to encourage them. And where we are this morning in 1 John, the text that we've just read, we find ourselves... Uh, in the second of three proofs that John gives to these Christians to assure them that they really are authentic believers. This is the second of three proofs that John gives them to assure them that they really are authentic believers. Last week you'll have seen the first proof that started really in verse 18 uh, through to verse 27. And that proof that John gave these believers to validate them as Christians is this. You pass the truth test. You pass the doctrine test. This group who've got up and left, they have rejected some pretty fundamental truths about who Jesus Christ is. That's why the theme of truth was, was prominent in that passage, wasn't it? This group who've got up and left, they deny some very fundamental truths about the deity of Christ. If you glance your eye at verse 22, you'll see that this group who got up and left, they deny that Jesus even was the Christ. He's not the Messiah, they say. John says, that's a red flag. But you, you believe the truth about who Jesus is. And that's a proof. That's evidence. That's a good sign that you really are an authentic believer. That's the first proof he gives that comes just before our passage this morning. The third proof he gives, the one that comes just after our passage this morning, starts really in verse 11 of chapter 3. The first proof was the, the doctrine test. The third proof is the relational test. He says, look how you love each other. Look, as you gather together, how you love each other. You have nothing particularly in common that should unite you together. You're different people from different backgrounds, from different ethnicities and different financial and economic backgrounds. But look how you love each other. Why? Because the gospel supernaturally unites you together. He says that's a good sign. That's proof that you really are one of God's children. So proof number one that these believers really are authentic. They affirm the truth of the scriptures. Proof number three, the relational proof. They love one another. But in our text this morning, we see the second proof sandwiched between the other two. And it's not a doctrinal one. It's not a relational one. But it's an ethical one. Ethical proof. In other words, what John wants to affirm to these believers is you don't just pass the truth test. You don't just pass the relational test. But you actually pass the ethical test. 
As a true believer, your conduct should reflect the profession that you make. And that's what John's going to really explore in this little section of 1 John. I think we know that theme because it's bookended for us at the start and the end of the section. At the start, I think really in verse 29, look what he says. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's kind of the start of the section. Talking about the importance of righteousness, good deeds, your conduct. The very last verse, cast your eye down to verse 10. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's the kind of bookends of this section. Talking about how your work, your conduct, affirms the message that you preach. And so the question I really want to ask of this passage this morning, as we think about the ethical test that validates these Christians, here's the question I want to ask. I think it's the question that John's asking as well. And it's this. Why does our conduct prove us to be authentic believers? Why does our conduct prove us to be authentic believers? Why does your conduct matter? Why would a believer, someone who claims to be a Christian, why would their conduct back up the message that they proclaim? I think we see three reasons that I'd love us to explore in these next few moments in this passage. Notice reason number one. Here's the first reason why our conduct proves us to be authentic believers. Reason number one is that true believers have received a new birth. True believers have received a new birth. If you look at verse 29, uh, you'll notice a very interesting phrase right at the end of that verse. Let me read it for you again. It says, if you know that he is righteous, speaking of Jesus, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That little phrase, born of him, is interesting, isn't it? It's kind of a unique phrase. It's the first time we've encountered it in 1 John. But as you read through the rest of 1 John, you'll notice that that phrase comes up time and time again with increasing intensity. It doesn't just come up here in verse 29. You'll see it comes up in verse 9 of chapter 3, verse 7 of chapter 4, and in chapter 5 it comes up in verse 1, verse 4, and verse 18. Born of him, born of him, born of him. It's this phrase that we see throughout the New Testament, don't we, as describing someone who's a Christian or someone who is born again. I don't know if you ever get told that you look like your parents. Do you ever get told that? It can either be a good thing or a bad thing. Okay? It can be sometimes a very humbling experience when you're told that you look like your parents. I quite often get told that I look like my dad. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Uh, well, it depends whether or not these talks are recorded as to how honest I will be. Uh, <laughs> But it's quite a humbling experience. I do, I can acknowledge, I do kind of look like my dad, right? But not only do I look like my dad, as I get older, I discover that I also have similar mannerisms to my dad, okay? I laughed at my own joke the other day. That's my dad. He does that. (laughs) And the truth is, I could try and detach myself from my dad, couldn't I? I could change my name if I wanted. I don't want to, by the way, but I could change my name. I could try and detach myself from my dad. But here's the truth. I'm always going to look like him. I'm always going to have similar mannerisms to him. Why? Because I'm born of him. He's my father. He's my giant father. And whenever you're born of him, it follows naturally that you have certain characteristics which are like him. We are born of him. And that's kind of the idea that John's getting at here. True believers are born of Christ. You don't just receive a new name, you receive a new nature. Being converted to Christianity isn't just like changing your favorite football team. Being converted to Christianity isn't just like changing your bank. No, you don't just receive a new name, you receive a new nature. You can't escape it. And so do you see John's logic? He's saying this. 
If you really are a Christian, something amazing has happened. You haven't just received a new name, you've received a new nature. And so it's going to follow that. Since you've received a new nature, your conduct is going to change. Is it not? It has to. Because your nature's changed. You've now been born of him. And that causes John to burst out into praise. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father's given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John just bursts out into praise at this idea of being born of him, born of Christ. He kind of couples it with this idea of adoption, that we are now adopted into God's family. Amazing truth if you're a Christian. I recently started watching, well, watched it all actually, a documentary about Princess Diana on Netflix. That's how exciting my life has become. Okay, I'm watching di- not uh, documentaries on Princess Diana. But it's quite an astonishing story, isn't it? When you think about this woman, Diana, just a normal individual working at a nursery school, and all of a sudden, one thing changes, and that is she marries Prince Charles. She's entered into a union with Prince Charles, and now everything changes, doesn't it? She's actually royalty now. She has access into the presence of the queen. Unbelievable. The only thing that's changed is her union with Prince Charles. And so it is with you and I. We've been adopted into God's family. We're not just average Jews like Princess Diana. The Bible tells us we're sinners, depraved to our very core, corrupt with this disease called sin. But whenever we become a Christian, something amazing happens. We are in union with Jesus Christ. And because of that, we enjoy all the privileges of royalty. We get granted access to the presence, not just of the queen, but the king of all kings. We're adopted into God's family. And John says, isn't that amazing? See what love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. Isn't it amazing just to pause and reflect? What are you thankful for this morning? Isn't that one thing you're thankful for? That the King of all kings, the creator of everything, who sustains everything from his very breath, would invite you to come into his family? It's astonishing. But perhaps one of the questions you might ask when you hear that, you think, it sounds great when you put it like that. sounds great. But wouldn't the world stand up and take note? Like if I'm really as a Christian, adopted into the king of kings family, adopted into the creator and sustainer of this world's family, wouldn't people kind of notice? Like that's what happened with Diana, wasn't it? When she was brought into the royal family, everyone wanted to know more. The reporters were hounding her for more interviews. The TV cameras were all trying to catch a glimpse. Because whenever you get invited into the family of royalty, it's a pretty big deal, is it not? And so perhaps you might be asking the question, well, if I'm adopted into God's family, the ultimate king of kings, would people not want to know more? Would people not be tripping over themselves to ask me about my life and the hope that I have? I don't know if you're anything like me. You probably didn't have anyone this week tripping over themselves to try and ask you, are you a Christian? Wow, you're in God's family? Amazing. It's not our experience. Why not? Well, John tells us, look at the end of verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Here's what John says. Even Jesus Christ, the very king that you follow, was rejected. Here's the irony about Jesus Christ. He's the most powerful king ever to have lived in the human history, yet he was rejected by his own people. And so John says it's natural, even considering the fact that Jesus himself was rejected, you as his followers will also be rejected. You should expect that. And you know, I reckon that was of comfort to these believers in this church to whom John was writing. Because I would imagine that this group who got up and left, their teaching might have been drawing in a bit of a crowd. Perhaps people were becoming interested about this new spirituality. 
People were following them. People were getting, quote-unquote, converted to this new way. And these believers might have been thinking, well, if that really is truth, people are really being appealed to it, maybe it really is the real deal. They're seeing more numerical growth than we are. Maybe that validates them. But John says no. Numerical growth is not the acid test to the legitimate truth. He says, in many ways, you should expect people to reject your message. Just because people reject your message, don't let that lead you to believe that your message is false. No, in many ways, it should make it more true. Because the gospel is an offensive message because the king you serve is an offensive king. Even his own people rejected him. And so reason number one, that your conduct matters. Reason number one as to why your conduct should validate that you really are a Christian is that you have received a new birth. Not just a new name, but a new nature. Notice the second reason, though, that we see in verses 2 to 3, why our conduct matters and proves us to be authentic believers. It's that true believers not only have received a new birth, but they've also received a future hope. They've received uh, a future hope. Do you know, I would imagine as we think about this topic this morning and thinking about our works and how our works validate us and affirm that we really are true Christians, the truth is we all get a little bit nervous when we think about that, don't we? Because we're keenly aware that we're all sinners. In fact, as you think about this morning, as you think about your last week, no doubt you can be made more than aware as you think about the many times you failed as to how far you fall short of God's standard. Do you not? In fact, if I was to do a survey this morning and ask you, raise your hands if you think your works meet the standard to be affirmed as one of God's children, I don't think many hands would go up. The truth is we'd be kind of worried if someone's hand did go up. Well, really, you think you're good enough? That's why we're thankful for the gospel, isn't it? The gospel of grace, that that we are failures, but Jesus stands in our place. Makes us righteous before the Father. And what John says in verses 2 and 3 here is really to affirm, yes, we're sinners. We mess up. We're not perfect. But here's the distinguishing truth. One day we will be. One day we will be. One day when we meet Christ, we will be free from the presence of sin. Look what he says, verse 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. John's saying we are God's children now. But even though we're God's children now, and you know this to be true, we're not perfect. We're far from it. We let God down time and time and time and time again. But he says, here's the hope. One day we will be perfect. One day we will be like Christ. And so there's this motif throughout this passage and throughout the whole Bible of this kind of already but not yet. We are already God's children, but we are not yet experiencing the full benefits of what it means to be God's children. You see it in Romans chapter 8, don't you? In that little passage in 18 to 25 where Paul says, we are already God's children, but we are waiting to be revealed as God's children. So in one sense, we're already God's children, but in another sense, we're waiting to be revealed as God's children. John gets at a similar idea here, doesn't he? He says, we are God's children now, but we are still awaiting the appearing of God's children. Already, but not yet. Let me see if I can illustrate this to you in an imperfect way, but it might help a little bit. Imagine uh, a couple have been trying to adopt a son for a series of months. And so for months and months and months and months and months, they go through this lengthy process. And finally, they get to the very end of the process. They're in the adoption agency and they sign the papers. Papers are signed, and at that moment, let me ask you a question. Is the son adopted? At that moment, when the papers are signed, 
Yes. Isn't he? He's 100% legally adopted. But let me ask you another question. Has he experienced the full benefit of his adoption? Well, no. He hasn't met his extended family. He hasn't seen his new room. He hasn't spent Christmas with his new family. He is 100% adopted right now, but in another sense, he's still awaiting the full benefits experientially of that adoption. And that's kind of like where you and I are right now. We are 100% God's children, fully adopted into his family. The moment you trusted Christ, you are legally adopted into God's family, but the full benefits of that adoption have not yet been made known to you and won't be until you're with him in glory without the presence of sin holding you back. And John's real point here is this. Look at verse 3. It's this, that for those who really are true believers, that is a motivating factor. Look what he says. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christians aren't perfect, but we're keenly aware that one day we will be made perfect, free from the presence of sin, when all things are restored. And John says that motivates true believers in the present. As we think about that day, it motivates us to fight sin on this day. And so why does your conduct matter as a means of validating you as an authentic believer? Well, true believers have received a new birth, a new nature. But secondly, true believers have this hope. One day I will be with Christ. I will be free from the presence of sin and that motivates me now to fight sin. It's going to affect my conduct now. Thirdly and finally, what is the third reason that our conduct proves us to be authentic believers? Well, it's that true believers have God's indwelling spirit. True believers have God's indwelling spirit. In verse 4 through to 10, we really see John repeat the same message twice. He repeats the message twice. The first time he he tells us something in verses 4 to 6. And then he's going to tell us the exact same thing effectively in verses 7 through 9, but just from a slightly different angle. And uh, so those two verses, I suppose, those two passages kind of match up to one another. So let me walk through this. Try and follow the logic here uh, and see how these two passages are really saying the same thing to prove uh, an important point. Notice firstly verse 4, which matches up to kind of verse 7 and 8. Verse 4 says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Lawlessness or sin is lawlessness. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been seen as sinning from the beginning. What's the first thing John gives us? It's effectively a definition of sin, isn't it? He gives us a definition of sin. The first definition is in verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. That's a helpful definition. Sin is lawlessness. What's lawlessness? It's saying to God, I don't care about your law. I don't care about your rule. I'm a law unto my own. I do what I want. Because that is primarily and fundamentally what sin is. It's a violation of God's law. What makes sin is not whether or not it affects other people. What makes sin sin is not whether or not other people know about your sin. Sin is not a social problem. It's a theological problem. Sin is lawlessness. It's a violation against God's law. So what's his definition of sin? It's lawlessness. But as he repeats the message over again in verse 7 and 8, he gives us a slightly different definition of sin, and it's this. Sin is effectively enslavement to the devil. Isn't that a strong picture? Sin is lawlessness, but sin is also slavery to Satan. John does not mince his words, sure doesn't. How does that make you feel about your sin? How often we sugarcoat our sin? 
how often we try and justify our sin. But John's not holding back any punches here. He says, no, sin is a violation of God's law. And it's ultimately serving the prince of the age, Satan himself. And so we've got this definition of sin. You'll notice also in these verses that he shows us that our actions reveal our allegiance. Our actions reveal our allegiance. Look at the start of verse 4. Whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Our actions reveal our allegiance. Verse 7. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Our actions reveal our allegiance. Conduct matters. So, so far we've seen a definition of sin. We've saw that our actions reveal our allegiance. Then as we move on in these passages in verses 5 and the second half of verse 8, we see that Jesus came to change our allegiance, didn't he? Jesus came to change our allegiance. Look at verse 5. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. In other words, Jesus came to change our allegiance. We see it again in the second half of verse 8. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what's John told us in verses 4 to 10 so far? He's given us a definition of sin. It's lawlessness. It's serving Satan, the prince of this age. Secondly, he's told us that our actions reveal our allegiance. Thirdly, he's told us that Jesus came to change our allegiance. So the question that remains is how would Jesus change our allegiance? And that's the answer that he gives us now in verse 6 and verse 9. Look what it says. Verse 6 says this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. How does he change our allegiance? It's through this intimate personal way of, of seeing him and knowing him. Seeing him and knowing him. That's what changes our allegiance. You see it expanded upon a little bit further in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. How does Jesus change our allegiance? How does Jesus bring us from darkness to light? Through his seed. So notice the logic that that John has been sharing with us. He's given us a definition of sin. It's lawlessness. It's slavery to the devil. He's told us that our actions reveal our allegiance. Thirdly, he's told us, but Jesus came to change our allegiance. And how would he do it? He would do it through us being able to know him through his seed. The word seed is a very important biblical word, isn't it? You see it right at the beginning of the Bible from Genesis 3, when sin first corrupted this world and infected humanity with Adam and Eve. Tempted by Satan himself. All of a sudden there is alienation between God and man. But we see this glorious gospel promise in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis. And God says to the woman, he says, From your seed will come someone who will crush the head of the serpent. And so as you read through the Old Testament, you're following this seed. You're trying to find who is going to be the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And the New Testament comes and we see revealed to us in its fullness, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed who will crush the head of the serpent. And that's exactly what he does at the cross. And so can you imagine Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who's going to crush Satan's head, walking among his disciples? An amazing moment. Amazing way of life, walking with Jesus. But then what happens? Jesus says, I'm going to leave you, but it's to your advantage that I go. Because I'm going to send someone else who's going to indwell in you, who's going to empower you to live for me. 
You remember that? Let me read it to you in John chapter 16, verses 7 to 11. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. See what Jesus is saying? I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send someone who's going to live inside your body. And he's going to empower you to live for me. He's going to convict you of sin. He's going to lead you in righteousness. He's going to affect your conduct like nothing or no one else. Because friends, Christianity is not just you living for Christ. It's Christ living through you. It's God empowering you by his spirit to live a holy, righteous life. To become more and more like him. It's Christianity. God's spirit indwelling in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. Indwelling in your body. And empowering you to live a righteous life. Affirming the truth of the message you proclaim. And so what's John's point? It's this. You really think that someone with God's spirit indwelling in their body. You really think that someone who has the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Living in their body. Is going to have a life which is no different from everyone else in the world? You must be kidding. No, your conduct matters. Your conduct affirms that you really are children of God. For goodness sake, you have God's spirit living inside of you. And he's going to empower you. I like uh, football, love football. I'm not very good at football. I'm not going to tell you who I support either because being an Arsenal fan is pretty embarrassing these days. But I love football, but I'm not very good at football. I'm better at watching it than playing it. Um, But here's the truth. I I could try and be like the best footballer in the world, couldn't I? I could try and be like Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo. And I could employ a certain number of tactics to try and be like these guys. I could watch their diets and imitate their diets. I could watch videotapes of them training and I could try and follow their training and do what they do. And I could follow them every step of the way, just do what Messi does. Would I get better at football? For sure I would, wouldn't I? But would I be able to play football like Lionel Messi just by imitating him? No! Because I'm not Lionel Messi. And quite often that's our approach to becoming like Christ, isn't it? We just follow Christ. Try and be like Christ. What would Jesus do? But imitation only goes so far, doesn't it? But God doesn't just give us imitation. He gives us transformation. He says, don't just be like Christ. Here's Christ's spirit living through you. He's going to empower you to live for Christ. You better believe that's going to affect your conduct, isn't it? So why does your conduct matter? Why does it affirm whether or not you really are one of God's children? Well, true believers have received a new birth. Not just a new name, but a new nature. It's going to affect how you live. True believers have this future hope that they're going to be free from the presence of sin and that motivates them in the present. And thirdly, true believers have God's indwelling spirit living in their bodies. Just as we close... I uh, was recently reading a book by a guy called uh, Greg Gilbert. It's called Assured. And he talks a lot about the book of 1 John. And he said how he was going to preach through it in his church. And he said he was shocked by the number of responses he got from his church members in anticipation of him preaching through 1 John. And he said the overwhelming sense was nervousness. Because the congregation kept coming to him and saying, we're really nervous about going through 1 John. It really makes me question whether or not I really am a Christian. And you can kind of understand that, can't you? Because quite often 1 John uses this rod to beat us with, to make us doubt whether we really are Christians. But what he says in this book is that's really quite ironic, isn't it? Because that's not at all the purpose of 1 John. 
Remember the purpose of 1 John? Look at verse 13 of chapter 5 again. John writes this to real believers, the people who've remained in the church, authentic believers, so that they would know that they really are Christians. The word know comes up time and time and time again in 1 John. It's so that you would know. It's to give you confidence. So firstly, that that assure you that if you're here and you're a believer, have confidence. This is for you, to give you confidence, not to make you question. Secondly, as you look at those three proofs, the proof about the doctrine that Jesus really is the Christ, the proof about how your life desires to match up ethically with that of Jesus Christ, and the third proof that you'll see next week about loving one another. In one sense, don't you notice how simple these proofs are? How simple these tests are as as John is trying to ask you to apply them to your life. If you're here and you really struggle with doubt that you are a Christian, notice how simple they are. Do do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, yeah, I do. Do you seek to live for him? Are you motivated by the fact that one day he's going to return? Well, yeah, I do. Imperfectly, but yes. I mean, do you love people in your church? I mean, yeah, I do. John says then, take hope. Have hope. Take confidence. And he's talking about the whole of life because here's what we do. We immediately pinpoint that one area, don't we, that we struggle with. We think about loving our fellow church members and we think about that one person who does our head in, don't we? You think about living a life like Christ and we immediately think about that one area that we super struggle with. But he's talking about your whole life. The simple tests of validate whether you really are authentic Christians. And we love to add that little word enough, don't we? enough. The legalistic side of us loves to add the word enough. We say, do I live, love people enough? Do I live a righteous life enough? But he's talking about your whole life. Have heart, take heart, have confidence that you may know that you truly are a believer and live in the confidence and assurance that gives you. If you're here and you think to yourself, yeah, I, I love people, I'm imperfect, but I genuinely desire to, to follow Christ and to live for him. And I affirm the truth that Jesus really is who he says he is, the Christ. And John says, take confidence, take heart, and go and live out of the freedom and the joy and the liberation of knowing that you're one of God's children. Let me pray as the band come up. <coughs> Father, we thank you for... Uh,